This is The Think Tank with Dr. Mike O'Neill talking about the major political, economic, and social issues of the week. KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. The Think Tank. Well, we have a number of interesting statewide issues to talk about this week. Uh, uh, later on, we'll have Julie Earthley on the show to discuss various legislative developments, specifically a series of proposals that seem designed to constrain uh, the democratic process. Julie's a, con- a communications consultant with Earthley Uncuffed and a columnist for the Arizona Mirror. But first, we have an update. Dave Biscabing is back. He was on the show a couple of weeks ago. Dave's an investigative reporter for Channel 15. Not hard to see why he's won three national Emmys and a slew of other awards for his work on investigative journalism. Uh, he's on, has been doing a series of uh, investigations related to the issue of politically motivated arrest and police and prosecutor overcharging. Um, I want to ask you, just in case somebody, uh, you know, we. We have a moving audience, and even though we were on two weeks ago, like, could we sort of backtrack very briefly and bring people up to speed with what we talked about a couple of weeks ago, and then we want to go on with new developments? Sure. Our, our politically charged investigation really looks at the Phoenix Police Department and Maricopa County Attorney's Office and how they're handling protest arrest cases and prosecutions uh, from 2020. And what we found is that they are targeting certain police protest activist leaders. They are arresting groups and grossly overcharging them based on wild exaggerations and outright lies. As one egregious example, it's a case that's now been dismissed because of our reports, but they charged a group of 18 protesters as a criminal street gang and compared them to a grand jury as being as dangerous or more dangerous than the Bloods, Crips, Mexican Mafia, and Hells Angels, which is so outright the egregious just on its face, but it's just also not true. So on a large what scale- What was their justification for calling them a gang? Legal well, justification? Well, you know, the gang, the gang statute to be labeled a street gang in Arizona is very broad. You need seven, there's seven criteria. You need to meet just two. Uh, they say this group met three and that the three are they chanted all cops are bastards uh, or ACAB. They wore mostly black and they carried umbrellas, which they used to block pepper balls and pepper spray. And for those three reasons, they were the ACAB gang or the all cops are bastards gang, which is made up. It's not actually a, a gang. It's not true. But they charged them as such. And uh, they were facing very heavy felony charges because of that, some facing more than 30 years in prison if convicted on all counts. But now those charges are gone because um, we exposed how grossly, um, well, how exaggerated and, and outright dishonest they were in the first place. Now, I, I would say what scares me as a citizen is it's kind of fortunate that, that you got there and were looking into this, but absent the media attention, what do you think would have happened here? I think that they would have toiled in a long, nasty legal battle for months, maybe even years. I do not think that at the end of the day, it's likely that most or all of them would have ended up you know, being convicted or, or facing these gang charges. But I guess that's not really the point, is it? The, the point is that you load them up so that they plead to something and you can claim a win as the police and prosecutors. So I think that 
this case wouldn't have been dismissed, I think you would have saw a lot of plea deals. And, and because I think you're looking at taking such a major risk by going into court, even if you're innocent, and really the idea of facing those heavy of charges, because even if you're convicted on a few, you're looking at prison time. Well, even if you're not convicted at all, you've incurred legal costs. You have had to, you know, your name is besmirched. You have to not show up for work. You might lose for your job when you're on trial. There's a, a lot of consequences to being arrested, even if you're exonerated. Some did lose their jobs. Um, some were lucky enough that the people that employed them trusted them and knew that they were not who they're being portrayed by the county attorney's office or by Phoenix police. But certainly there's a huge personal toll. The story we did last night looked at the personal toll of a nurse in Prescott who wasn't even involved in the protest. He was in the wrong place at the wrong time. He got swept up. They knew it. And they said, screw it. We're going to charge him as a gang member anyway. It was, it's outrageous. And just the way that this person was treated, he was lucky enough that he's able to convince his employer that I promise I didn't do these things. They stuck by him. But he talked it was about pretty clear from the video. He wasn't even on the same side of the street. He wasn't. And, and it, it, he was actually standing next to these alt-right extremists, uh, the, the AZ Patriots, right? Kind of near them. And they arrested him and not the, the, the Patriot ladies, which it brings up its own set of questions about who they're, they're targeting and who they're being tolerant well, it, of. It, it brings up the question, and I was going to get to this later on in terms of broader implications, but... But I see this as involving, you know, we want to love law enforcement. We think of them as the umpires that intervene in disputes from people and keeping them from killing one another. We want them to protect our lives and our property against bad people. But when it comes to First Amendment protest, we want them to be equal in and neutral with respect to the content of protest and broadly supporting people's right to protest while requiring people to stay within reasonable limits in terms of, of uh, property, you know, property damage is not protest. Obstructing a street, it, I'd usually give way to that and say, you know, this is where the First Amendment ought to prevail. Somebody's got to, if it's a big crowd and you're blocking traffic because it's a big crowd, you, no matter which side you're on, I said this about the you know, the protest in Washington, D.C., when they marched from the White House to the Capitol and they blocked traffic, I'd say, you cut them some slack because that's free speech. You know, it's it's a price you pay and yeah, traffic. But but in 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 the cat in the case of the Capitol, you crossed the line when you went on the other side of a police barrier. Well, I mean, said, you... that that said in particularly the U.S. Capitol you know, where there's a, it's not just a random barrier in the street. It's, it's, a, it's a serious and dangerous incursion. Well, look how law enforcement handled the protests and demonstrations following the election versus how they handled these Black Lives Matter protests that resulted in these charges. You, you look at just the, 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 at the outset, at the beginning, what they're willing to tolerate for one side versus the other, right? One side marches down the street with an umbrellas and the police are following them 50, 60 deep. While the other side, you literally have a few standing, um, leaning up against, you know, police cars with their hands folded, even as uh, media or counter posters are being threatened, pushed. Um, we had an incident where these Patriot group, th these women that weren't arrested at the street corner, they actually got inside the vote counting building when they weren't supposed to be in there and they were let to just leave. They weren't arrested. Now, I'm not advocating for their arrests. I'm saying 
at the other end of it, why why is it such a disparity in how they're they're treating the two different sides of these protesters? And that really gets to the heart of the case and whether there's inherent bias in how these how these responses and prosecutions are carried out. And your implication is that there is. Well, there 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 obviously is. That is a fact. You can look at how these are handled. You can look at the fact that they will look at a group and make up a street gang based on made up information to look at these. Most of them, some of them are minors, teens. Some of them were in their early 20s. Some of them never even knew any of these people and just joined the protest that night. And to lump them together and call them a criminal street gang, that's not just over-prosecuting. That, that, is, that is fiction. It is false. It is lying. Um, and that is, it's inexcusable. I wonder when I heard the officer testify, and particularly testifying, yes, these folks are as dangerous as the Crips and the Bloods not only ridiculous on the face of it, but how, what credibility does an officer like that have in other cases when they make some assertion? So here's what I haven't been able to get answered. And this is what I want to ask the county attorney, Alistair Adele herself, because she won't sit down for an interview. My question, and I've asked this in an email and they haven't responded to this specifically, is what are you going to do with those officers? Why haven't they been put on the Brady list yet? I mean, what you have is significant. Can we pick that up in just a moment? We're running over here. We'll be back in just a moment, and we'll let you pick up this exact thought when we return in just a moment in the Think Tank. The Think Tank. KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. We are here talking about protests in uh, Phoenix with Channel 15 ace reporter Dave Biscobin. And I interrupted you in the middle of a thought, and uh, please pick up what you were saying. Well, we're talking about with these claims of these protesters being a criminal street gang and some of the other really questionable claims in other protest cases. You, you asked, what's happening with these officers? How, how can we trust their word in other cases? And that's a, that's a fair point. I mean, and is that in fact, not a liability? If I were a defense attorney and one of those, uh, the, the guy who, who testified that these people are more dangerous than the Crips and the Bloods, if I had him as a, if I was a defense attorney and had him as a prosecution witness on any other t- uh, case, I would use that to undermine his credibility as a witness. Well, I mean, it's certainly something that should be disclosed to them as part of discovery. And that's the question I can't seem to get answered from the county attorney's office in Alistair Dell. And I would ask her directly if she would grant me an interview, which she's refusing. And that is this. Let's set aside these, these cases now. Moving forward, if these officers are involved in cases brought by your office, are you going to disclose evidence like you're constitutionally required about their integrity and credibility issues? Are you investigating them for to be for placement on the Brady list. And again, the Brady list is a tracking mechanism for officers with integrity concerns and issues of honesty and, and credibility because that's required by the constitution. So are they being added to this list? Is information about their testimony that is very problematic being disclosed so that a defense attorney can tell a jury and a judge in court, now you say my client did this, but in this other case, you compare these umbrella carrying protesters to a gang that's like the Crips and the Bloods, and you said they're more dangerous. Why should we believe you now? And and they have every right to to that information so that they can evaluate it as part of their defense strategy and present it to the court. But we don't know if that's actually being applied to. And we do know that the Maricopa County Attorney's Office has had a lot of failures when it comes to Brady disclosures. Well, the the other thing, uh, apart from the police officers, your own reporting showed that the prosecutor in charge of this case spoke to the 
officers 26 minutes after the initial arrest. Most of that 26 minutes is probably in transit. 26 minutes later, she is on the phone with them. And the inference is that they're taking orders from her about what to charge. Well, let's be very clear about something here. These aren't these protest cases aren't just these arrests aren't just being made. The charges aren't just being filed, and then it goes into some hopper at the county attorney's office, and it gets assigned to some prosecutor. These protest cases are going to a specific unit in the Maricopa County Attorney's Office, the First Responders Bureau, and then within that unit, they are going to a specific set of prosecutors, mainly this prosecutor named April Sponsel. This unit, the First Responders Unit, is a unit set up specifically by Alistair Adele. It is her creation. It was one of her first major moves when she was appointed county attorney. So this is not by chance. These cases aren't just falling on random prosecutors who may be going rogue with the cases. Well, you this is pointed by design. out again in your reporting, this is not the only case where they've charged gang-related activities pursuant to a protest. True. So there is a separate protest case where they alleged gang activity, but they did it different. They didn't charge them with crimes, what they did is they added what's called sentence enhancement. So they alleged, you're a gang member. We're going to apply that once you're found guilty or you plead. And that's really significant in its own right, because while they're not charging them as gang members at the outset, by alleging it at the back end, it basically makes any crime you may plead guilty to or be found guilty of, even if it's very minor, mandatory prison. So it is a very severe allegation to put on. But then again, all of a sudden, our stories start airing. And then a month after those allegations are made, they, they, they disappear. They say, oh, those were inadvertent. Now think about that for a second real quick. And I'll go very quickly here. But it's in order for that to be inadvertent, someone at the Maricopa County Attorney's Office would have to identify specific defendants that they want to label as gang members. They would have to take their names, put them on a filing. They'd have to write up the allegation in the filing. They'd have to sign it. And then they'd have to file it in court. It's hard to believe that that was inadvertent, but that's the only explanation they'll give it to me. And it was not, a clerical error. Not when she's on the phone with them 26 minutes after the initial rape. They're, they're probably deciding. She, it's, it certainly sounds to me like she's deciding on what the charges are going to be and is, in, is consulting on that. And frankly, probably directing them, charging with this, this, and this. Well, it says per direction from April Sponsel. So th yeah. there is direction, absolutely, yeah. about what to do and how to do it. So where's the case go from here? We got about a minute. Well, the case goes from right now. Uh, I don't think the cases really go. The gang case isn't going to go anywhere. Um, I think that's really unlikely. You have the Phoenix Police Department and, and Maricopa County Attorney's Office. They've both launched outside investigations. Whatever those turn up uh, will be, remain to be seen. But the point is this. The credibility of those officers and those prosecutors is, is basically shot. So I don't think you'll see the gang charges return. I'm really interested to see what happens with some of the protests other major protest cases and whether they'll get dropped. A few cases, including one today, have already been dismissed. So I'm waiting to see if you see dozens more of these uh, defendants uh, have their charges dropped. How many, how many cases like this are there around altogether? Well, the gang case was only in itself, but uh, there's about three other major gang, uh, protest cases. And I think you're looking at about a few dozen defendants between them. All right. Well, thanks very much. Uh, uh, we will... I invite you back if this goes further. It's certainly uh, uh, a matter of worthy of public attention. Great work. And, thank, and you. thank you. Thank you for coming back. We appreciate hearing from you. We will be back with uh, an entirely different agenda with Julie Urfi in just a moment after the break. A quick logistical note. This show will run 
at 6 to 7 p.m. on Saturdays starting next week. Our uh, rerun of the show will remain the same at 9 to 10 p.m. on Sundays. So the new time is 6 to 7 p.m. on Saturdays. There's something happening here What it is ain't exactly clear There's a man with a gun over there Telling me I got to beware I think it's time we stop Children, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down The Think Tank KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com Okay, we are switching gears from uh, the Phoenix Police and Maricopa County prosecutors to the Arizona State Legislature. And in particular, there are a long list of pieces of proposed legislation that seem to have the common thread by uh, constituting really attempts to thwart democracy. I don't see any other way to put it. But I, I want to set up the context of this. Julie Erfley is here, and uh, I'm going to get a, start out getting with just a little bit in the weeds, and I'll explain afterwards uh, uh, why. What is a strike-all amendment in the legislature? So a strike-all, otherwise known as a striker, is basically where they take the text of a separate bill and they strike all of the language from it, all of the text, and they replace it with a whole new bill. So it's, it's, you know, kind of like a ghost bill in some respects, right? Like you can, you can have a bill that started out um, addressing education, its language can be completely changed, and suddenly it's addressing elections. And here's the, the significance of that in this context. A lot, there is a deadline this week that for any bill to be passed in this session, it must be out of, out of the committee process by, by this past week. Right. And uh, what, a what that means though, is you would think that would mean if it, something doesn't get out, if it gets killed in committee this week, that it's dead. Well, that would be the case were it not for these strikers where they can take a, a bill about, uh, I don't know, about dogs, wipe all the words off the piece of paper and insert another bill on a completely unreal. You really start out with a blank sheet of paper after they've taken all the words on it and they insert a complete other bill. That means that no bill is completely dead until the legislature has adjourned for the session. So Correct. That, that's the context because we're going to go through a number of bills that are under various states of consideration, some of which you may hear are being killed in committee. That doesn't mean that they're dead. Let's, let's start in order. There is one that uh, I think probably is the number one uh, on the public outrage list. This was a bill to allow the legislature to decide who gets the electoral votes for president, regardless of the outcome of the counting of votes. 
Right. So why bother voting for the president if that's the case, right? <laughs> You're, that, that is the most blatant attempt to take away the will of the voters. I, I don't know what else you would call it. And yet you have legislators who are like, wait, why are you upset about this? I don't, I don't understand, you know? Okay, and let's name names who did it. <laughs> well, Shana Bullock, um, Representative Shana Bullock had sponsored that. And, and that one, I just got to interrupt for a second. Her husband has an important job in this state. He is? Yes, he is a Supreme Court justice. And yeah. he understands, you know, chief the Arizona justice, Constitution. Chief yeah. Justice, yeah. Uh, I'm not sure if Clinton okay. is chief Our justice. Chief, uh, this is the wife of a Supreme Court justice. Correct. And, and what's really important for Arizonans to understand is that our founding fathers, the folks who wrote our state constitution, they were very much in, in belief of direct democracy. It's why it was so important for them to have something like the ability to recall, recall uh, politicians who you didn't care for. In fact, they, they weren't allowed to pass that through uh, to become a state. And so then, you know, once we became a state, they promptly inserted that back yeah, they, the they made us take it out right correct. and then we got admitted as a state and the first thing we did is promptly put it right back in the right this was correct. the 1912 is the middle of the progressive era and you maybe the word progressive in arizona may not seem to admit but that is we were admitted <laughs> as a very progressive state because we did were admitted as a state when a lot of these progressive ideas uh were floating around like the ability to recall judge initiative referendum and recall were right. were ideas that were not around in 1789 but by the early 20th century very much were okay. right and the idea of initiatives right initiatives and as you said referendums those were incredibly important and they are part of our state constitution again that's part of that direct democracy where basically our constitution says it's not just the legislature that makes laws the people the state. <laughs> we have the right to direct democracy to make our own laws. Since we have raised that subject, let me point out that one of the proposed uh, pieces of legislation, uh, concurrent registration 2016, would ask voters to change the Constitution so that citizen initiatives have to get 60% in order to pass. Right. Now, this is something that uh, Republican legislators have been upset about for quite some time. It really started in earnest and not just Republican legislators. I, I should make note that uh, the Arizona Chamber of Commerce has been a big supporter of making the initiative process as difficult as possible. And a lot of that started because Arizona voters passed a minimum wage increase. And that really upset the chamber. They spent, you know, a lot of money working with legislators to try and do everything they could to, to upend that and to make more initiatives very difficult. So the chamber lost on that on that initiative, as did a lot of these Republican legislators. Then you have this last year where you had Prop 208. That of course was the education tax on wealthier Arizonans. Well, the chamber spent a ton of money, one, trying to get that kicked off the ballot as they had in, in 2018, and then again, trying to get it kicked off the ballot. It didn't get kicked off the ballot. Voters approved it. And now they're working overtime to try and, and basically implement legislation that would make it null and void. They're still going through the courts trying to overturn it. And they're working with legislators to do things like this, right? Where now we, we're gonna say going forward, oh, it can't just be a simple majority. Now 
we're going to ask for 60%. Basically, this is sour grapes. These are people who can't win in a, a free and fair election. And so they're doing everything they can in order to make it more difficult for things that they don't like to be passed by citizens. The chamber's position on minimum wage, I have to point out one thing about that after the fact that's absolutely hilarious. As you pointed out, they fought this tooth and nail but that didn't stop them last month from issuing a press release about how great Arizona is. And we have had the largest increase in, in per capita income. Right. <laughs> Most of which was directly attributable to the increase in the minimum wage, which they had fought tooth and nail. Right, right. That, they that they have a habit of people 12 bucks an hour that all of a sudden businesses were going to collapse. It didn't happen. Right. Uh, you know, they, they are talking about that at the federal level. You know, uh, what, oh, you know, if you if you pass the minimum wage law, which, you know, we're now at historical levels, by the way, the just this is a little bit of a side, but the current minimum wage in Arizona of $12.15 an hour, way higher than the federal. It is exactly what the 1968 minimum wage is corrected for inflation. Wow. In other words, 50 years later, how, and three years ago, they said, oh, that this rate would be catastrophic. We've right. already been there before. We had that rate in 1968. Of course, it, it sounded much smaller because it's you have to inflate the for the consumer price index, but it's almost to the penny what it was in 1968. Right. Well, and that language that the chamber used um, to try and thwart a minimum wage increase is the exact same language that they were using when Prop 208 was on the ballot. It was oh, again. Yeah. Business, it was 208. Businesses are going to yes. leave Arizona Correct. because uh, we're going to impose a, in effect, a tax surcharge on those individuals, nothing for business, but only right. those individuals, couples making more than a half million dollars a year. And furthermore, we're not touching the first half million. We're only imposing right. the additional three and a half percent on the money in excess of that. Because of that, everybody's going to leave here. I don't know. And give, they're going to move to what, Texas? I, I guess. Not a good move. Not a good move. <laughs> not right now. <laughs> so... Uh, we, we will be back. There have been other proposals to thwart democracy. We will talk about more of these when we return with Julie Arfley in the Think Tank in just a moment. The Think Tank. KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. Okay, we are talking to Julie Earfley here about some of the things going down in the Arizona legislature. A whole lot of proposals out there that seem to have a common thread of making it more difficult to vote. One of the proposals, Senate Bill 1069, would purge voters from the early voting list if you don't vote in uh, two consecutive elections. And a related bill would make it a felony for an election officer to send a mail-in vote to somebody who wasn't on the list in other words, and, and, and somebody wasn't on the list and didn't request it. So uh, talk to me about these proposals and how they fit into, uh, do you, do you, first of all, do you know the status of these two? So I know the proposal to make the PEVL the TEVL, which would make it from the permanent early voting list to the temporary 
early voting list, uh, which they're just dropping the word permanent from. Uh, that one did get through committee, I, I believe, on Tuesday, so right before that deadline. Um, I don't know right now the status on 2792, um, but as we said earlier, even if it hasn't made it through committee, there's always the possibility that it comes back up before the end of the legislative session. That one then, certainly could would fit in too. You don't even need a vehicle. You could make that a uh, an amendment uh, uh, to the uh, 1069 bill, which would yeah uh, yeah. Right. There's there's so many of these yeah. right now. Um, you know, the goal is I mean, there's a couple of goals. One, it's you know, Republicans are recognizing that the state is changing and it is becoming much more purple and it is becoming harder to win some of these elections because it is becoming so much so much more competitive. And so the goal is to create restrictions that make it less likely for the folks that they deem to be less desirable voters to vote. And so that's part of it. And, and, you know, by and large, so if you look at the pebble, turning the pebble into something that is no longer permanent, uh, who, you know, which set of voters generally don't vote in every election? Well, unfortunately, it's Democrats. <laughs> There's a lot of Democrats that don't vote in, in every election, particularly because a lot of uh, younger voters, they're not, they don't have that habit established yet. And a lot of times younger voters do tend to be more democratic. Uh, so this is really an attempt to kind of hit snooze on changing demographics in Arizona and to try and keep those Republicans in office that much longer. It, and it's it, it also, I think, it helps them boost this idea of the big lie right, which is that there was all of this supposed election fraud, which of course we know is completely untrue. And, and so now they have to create legislation after legislation after legislation in order to fix the fraud that didn't exist. And, and people are willing to accept it because of supposed fraud. But the reality is, is Republicans have been working on this for a long time. In fact, since 2013, which is a very crucial year for people to understand because that's when the U.S. Supreme Court struck down the preclearance portion of the Voting Rights Act, which Arizona had to follow, which said that before you make major changes to your, uh, how your elections are run, you have to get that pre-cleared by the Justice Department. Arizona didn't have to do that anymore. And what do you know? Immediately, there are these elections omnibus bills that they pass that are making all kinds of changes to make it more difficult to vote. Because they know that provisions like this never would have passed uh, muster in terms of the voting rights laws. Correct. Because Correct. they would have a disproportionate impact on minority voters. Correct. And, and by the way, just a tie some more things together here. This is also why a number of Democrats are upset with Senator Kirsten Sinema, because there is a, a, a bill right now that is attempting to make its way through Congress that would basically revise the Voting Rights Act that would reinstitute some form of preclearance. There's actually another bill as well, um, HR1, that would do all kinds of work that Democrats have been trying to do for some time, which expands voting by creating automatic voter registration, um, a number of other things that basically strengthen voting rights. And 
it's unlikely that those bills will make it through Congress so long as the Senate filibuster is in place, which, of course, the senator has said she is not willing to get rid of. Oh, let me be stronger than that. There is no way on earth that that bill is getting 60 votes. So Correct. if you don't vote to end the filibuster, you are guaranteeing that this bill does not see the light of day. Yes. Correct. And, and that's part of the problem. You know, once upon a time, by the way, the Voting Rights Act was very popular on both sides of the aisle. You know, it, it, it had, you know, people understood that this was so important to Americans. We want to make it easier for Americans to vote. We want to allow anybody who is qualified to have that right. All citizens should be able to vote. Um, but it, it's, it's sad because what we've seen is a, you know, in the last 10 years or so, we've really seen that right, just a lot of chipping away at it. Some people have called it the new Jim Crow. It, it, they really are going backwards in that respect. And, and that's sad because we do have an opportunity now with Democrats in the majority holding the White House and Congress to change that. But it, it could very well be a very small window and we may not get that opportunity. And what all of these bills, these are all like the old saw, you know, about how it's equally illegal for the rich and the poor to sleep under the bridges of London. You know? <laughs> uh, just golly gee, we're going to throw you off the list if you don't vote regularly. Oh, it just so happens Republicans vote regular, more regularly than Democrats. So most of the people thrown off will be Democrats. And oh, it just so happens that, uh, that, uh, you know, moving polling, pla it, polling places that, that are harder for some people to access than others and voter ID requirements, which, you know, for those of us in the middle class sound very reasonable and plausible until you realize if you're elderly, uh, you're lower income, you may not have a driver's license, you may, you, it's a much big, can you get them? Yes, you can, but it's a big deal. And the way you change election results is not by making, not by saying if you're black, you can't vote, but by making the hurdle just a little bit harder for some groups than others. It's a numbers game. If you throw 100,000 people off the early voting list, and they mostly happen to be Democrats, some of those people can still go in the polls and vote, but they know that some of them won't, so you change the numbers. It's right. not that you have to preclude every Democrat from voting. You have to just make it a little bit harder for Democrats than Republicans to vote because we know who they are demographically. It's very old, very poor minority. And, and, and we know those, all of these things, unless you believe there's six or eight proposals there, golly gee, it's just an accident that those all happen to hit one group harder than another. Uh, right. And that they all happened after or after 2013, after the U.S. Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act when, as well. Before that, they knew they couldn't get around it. And, and I must say, I think in Arizona, this time it has a very strong sense of urgency because they're looking around and saying, oh my God, we've pretty much been winning and everything, but we can actually lose statewide elections now. As they can lose, right, statewide, they can lose nationally as, as also demonstrated by a, a small margin. And, and they know that those margins are still small as they speak. So 
again, going back to what I said, they're trying to hit snooze on, on what is, is bound to happen eventually, but they're, they're, they're willing to risk, you know, create long-term damage in order to have these short-term gains. And we've noticed that these are not Arizona-only things. These kinds of legislation, often using the same language, is uh, being introduced all around the country, particularly in newly found swing states. We've right. seen this. It was done very successful uh, in Wisconsin, North Carolina. You're going to see it in Georgia. All of a sudden, Georgia looks like it's up for up for grabs. Anyway, I want to thank you very much, uh, Julie Earthley. It's been uh, enlightening. By the way, if you want to reach me, uh, there's a website, mikeoneal.org, and uh, from that, you can get to Twitter, Facebook, or an email to me and Julie to reach you. Yeah, my social media handle is Earthly Uncuffed, and I also have a website, Earthly Uncuffed. Thank you very much. We'll, we'll have to have you back. It's been an enlightening discussion. We'll see everybody next week in the Think Tank. We're coming to the edge, running on the water, coming through the fog, your sons and daughters. Let the river run, let all the dreamers waste the name.